Well, good Sunday morning to all of you. It is always, thanks Daniel, it's always a great joy to be in worship together and to study God's word together. Today we're going to talk about the art of encouragement. Barnabas, who shows up in scripture for the first time in that short piece we just read, was a man named Joseph who was given the name Son of Encouragement. And because there are so many good men on this Father's Day who have been the great encouragers of their family throughout the lives of their children or even neighborhood kids or what it may be, I wanted to remind us all what the art of encouragement can look like for us today. How many of you love to be encouraged, right? Yeah, it feels good. How many of you, you know, if anybody ever gives you a pat on the back, says, oh, I wish they hadn't have done that, right? It feels good. We like, we like people to say, at a girl or at a boy, right? Some of us, um, you know, shine under those sort of accolades. We sometimes might even chase after them. If you're an athlete or a musician or any type of person who finds themselves on an athletic field or a stage, you know what it feels like when the crowd cheers, right? When the fans get excited and encourage you toward continuing what you're doing. A couple months ago, interestingly, there was uh, what they believe is the first ever fanless major league baseball game. Because of a lot of the unrest uh, that had unfolded in Baltimore uh, just a couple of months ago, it was decided that the Chicago White Sox and the Baltimore Orioles would play one another without a single fan in the stadium. And uh, the news reporters were let in, the press, the media, they were all there, and they shared about how uh, eerie it actually was to be in this huge stadium with nobody cheering. And that all you heard for the duration of the game was the crack of the bat on a ball or the thud of a runner hitting the base, but there was no cheering. And this was a strange experience. Nobody has major league stadiums that aren't usually filled with people. Interestingly, there has been a high school basketball team in Gainesville, Texas, that has played almost every single one of their basketball games without a single fan. Press and media went down to study the situation in Gainesville, Texas, and they asked the team, they asked the players, they said, why don't you all have fans? And the players said, well, our parents are often too busy to come. Some of us don't actually have parents that can come. Some of our parents don't have the means or the ability to get here. And then they were asked, well, how come your peers don't come? How come your other high school students don't come. And the students responded and said, well, they're actually not allowed to come. You see, the Gainesville Tornadoes are the home basketball team for the local correctional facility in Gainesville where juveniles with felonies on their record go to school. And the only perk they can earn is the opportunity to play a basketball game. And rarely, if ever, does anyone get the perk to go watch the team. But Gainesville has to play against traditional high schools with cheerleaders and parents and bleachers and gymnasiums filled with people. And so in Waco, they were scheduled to play a game. And the students at a local high school in Waco, Texas, said, it's not right that these kids don't ever have fans. We would hate not to be encouraged. And so they actually asked their fans to divide themselves down the middle for a basketball game. And half of the the gymnasium wore the colors of the Janesville Tornadoes, made posters to cheer them on, and cheered them on the entire game. 
And what actually ended up happening, uh, the, the, the reporters who were there said that by the end of the game, the entire gym, no one was cheering for Waco anymore. They were all cheering for these kids um, at Gainesville. They were just so excited. And they, they interviewed some of the young boys who played uh, at the end. And one of the young men said this. He goes, when I'm an old man, I'll still be thinking about this. He goes, it showed me the real impact that encouragement and support for anybody can make. And journalist Steve Hartman, who covered the story, summarized it like this. He said, we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes. And those kids knew their mistakes, right? Probably more than some of us do. We all need someone who knows our mistakes but loves us anyway. And for that, those Gainesville players cannot thank the encouraging crowd enough. The power of encouragement It is a spiritual gift to encourage others. Paul lists it in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, if you want to look it up. It is a gift we are told we are supposed to exercise in Christian community and beyond the Christian community. Throughout scripture, we see stories of men and women alike who are encouragers. Jethro and Aaron who encouraged Moses. One of the wives of David, Abigail, who encouraged her husband, David, to make wise choices. We know there is power in encouragement. John Ortberg calls these balcony people. Encouragers, he says, are balcony people. He says this, you have a fuel tank and there are some people who fill your tank. There are some people who breathe life into you. They remind you of how good God is. They call you to live up to the best you can be. And when you're with them, you find your anxiety going down and your hope and sense of trust and faith just go up balcony people. But then he says, there's also basement people. There are basement people. He says, you have these people in your life too, who, when you're not looking, stick a hose in your tank and take a deep breath and start siphoning the fuel of life out. He says, these are basement people. They bring you down. They are joy, challenge, dream, squashing, fault, finding. They are the slow leaks in the hot air balloons of life. We all have in us the ability to be either a basement person or a balcony person for others. And some of you have had balcony people. You are who you are today. You have accomplished some of the things you have accomplished because you have had a balcony person cheering you on. And some of us probably know all too well what it feels like to have that basement person playing a prominent role in your life. And so when we get to scripture and we get to the story of Barnabas, we find ourselves asking the question, well, you know, what does encouragement look like in scripture? Barnabas is given this nickname, son of encouragement. This is not the only time a conversation on encouragement occurs. The word is actually used 105 times in the New Testament. And it does not simply mean to say nice things. It's not just, hey, way to go. Hey, you know, I like your hair or I like your car or the way you decorated your house or, you know, I admire your golf score, whatever it is. It's not just to say nice stuff. Throughout scripture, it is translated to give confidence, to support, to exhort, to admonish, to implore, and to build others up. Sometimes people encourage us, right, without saying a single word. It is so much more in scripture than just saying nice things. 
When we first meet Barnabas, we learn a few things about him from the text uh, that we just read this morning. First of all, he's from Cyprus, which, you know, at first glance, you're like, okay, great. He's from Cyprus. You know, what does that mean for me, right? He is an outsider to the community. This is a tight-knit, at this time, small community of believers. Jesus was a Jew, and this is a largely Jewish community of folks. And Barnabas is on the outside of this community, which left him open to possibly being mocked or belittled because he was considered a, quote, foreigner. He didn't speak Aramaic. He wouldn't have um, had uh, the ease of communication that some of them may have had with one another. He might have been mocked for his accent or things like that, right? We know this happens. And so he's an outsider, and yet he's committed to the community. He has land, enough that he wants to give to the community, this early group of Christians, these folks who had just seen their Lord and Savior crucified, murdered, then resurrected. Jesus has just left them and gone up to heaven. He's promised them the Holy Spirit, and they're trying to figure out the start of the church, the church that we've inherited today, the gatherings of Christians that still go on all over the world. This is the beginning of that movement. And he, Barnabas, is committed to it. And he's known in the community. You know what it's like when someone gives you a nickname, right? One that's like actually meaningful, not degrading, right? Kind of get this feeling like, oh, they know me. I've got a nickname, right? I mean, he's known. And of all the nicknames they could give this guy, they call him the son of encouragement. And you know what? He shows up in the background of the early church movement throughout the book of Acts over and over and over again. He is not the leading character in the story. There is not a book of Barnabas that we read. We do not have uh, high holy days or huge religious traditions centered around the life of Barnabas. But he is a consistent, encouraging presence in the life of the early church. He shows up again in Acts chapter 9. Paul, who used to be called Saul... Because he had no idea what the Christian community and life with Christ was about. And he thought it was so ridiculous that he actually was set on murdering Christians. He was a murderer. And he had such a dramatic conversion to Jesus that in route to torment a community, he was knocked off his donkey. He was struck blind. He was laying on the road and he converted to faith in Christ. Imagine what it would feel like then to show up in front of the very community that you were persecuting and say, Hey guys, that was, that was my bad. Uh, you know, uh, we're okay now. And and I, and I want to be part of this community. They would have likely said, I don't know if I buy that. Right. And maybe some of them were chased or persecuted or suffered at his very hands. And who stands up and vouches for him in front of the entire community? It's Barnabas. It's Barnabas. When he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, Paul tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. And he goes on to say, this man is good. I want to encourage you all to believe in him. Barnabas was the great encourager for Paul. What does this mean when we find ourselves then today in this setting. You know, encouragement was hard then as it can be now. Some of us, it might come naturally, but many of us, it might not. We live in a fiercely competitive culture. I mean, what 
What makes for good TV ratings, whether it makes for good TV or not, is obviously to be debated. But good TV ratings, 30 guys or 30 gals in a house fighting over a bachelor or bachelorette, right? This is competition, and we tune in by the millions to watch it. America's Got Talent, a huge competition. We've got 15 people on an island fighting and competing with each other to try to win. This is why the Gainesville story is so gripping. Who purposely jeopardizes their home field advantage to let somebody else be encouraged? You know, students, you guys are ranked. You're known by your numbers and your GPAs and you're competing. You're competing, right? That's what you go to school and you're in competition with the people against you in your classrooms. Kids are competing for the premier spot on the travel team before they can walk, right? This is sort of the culture we're in. Some of you are already anxious because tomorrow you have to go to work and compete because you've got to land the deal before the other person does. And you really hope the promotion goes to you and you've got to prove yourself or someone else is going to get the spot for you to win means that I lose this is the climate that we have to try to survive and live within. So a challenge to encourage one another almost sounds contradictory to our cultural ears, right? Jesus simply said about this stress, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Why did he say this? To encourage us. That's going to be okay, that we can survive we can make it. You know, our dads face so much pressure. Pressures to provide, to take care of the people that they love. And it's so interesting. The, the, the dads today, you guys, our culture is rough on you guys. I mean, good TV also means there's a doofus dad usually starring as the lead role, right? And sometimes this can be funny. I get it, right? But right, Homer Simpson and Jimmy Neutron and whether or not they're you know, the dad on Malcolm in the Middle, right? And as lovable as Ray Romano could be, that guy couldn't like toast bread, right? Without the toaster blowing up. Phil Dumphy, right? On Modern Family, he's laughable, but you know, wow. Dads are more than just doofuses. My eight-year-old made a card for my husband, Joel, today, and it spelled out, the word dad in an acrostic, and it said dynamite, awesome, and it said doofus. And then in parentheses, it said, you are not one, but I did not know another word that started with D. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, this is, you know, you, this is not, you know, there, there's, a, there's a Huggies commercial that aired a couple years ago. So to prove Huggies can handle just about anything, we put... The diapers to the ultimate test imaginable dads alone with their babies in one house for five days, right? Like the worst possible thing in the world is that a dad has to change a diaper. You know, the dads I know are not doofuses. You know, my husband can change a diaper with one hand and his eyes closed. And he's the equipment manager for all of our sports, but he's also the curator of the souls of my children. And he loves them and he prays for them and he does his darndest to be a good dad for them. And these are the dads that need encouragement. And so I want to cheer you on today if you guys are dads because culture is not going to do you any favors. 
So the art of encouragement is especially important today, I think, in the lives of the men that we know. Mark Twain actually commented on this years ago, obviously, in his writings. He said, you know, when we set set about accounting for a Napoleon or a Shakespeare, Raphael, Wagner, Edison, any extraordinary person, he says, he says the sheer raw talent they have can only account for so much. He says, what also happens when you see great talent is it's the atmosphere in which the talent was cradled that can largely explain it. It's the encouragement that person, that talent gathered at each stage of its development. And then he says, when we know all these details, then we know why the man was ready when his opportunity came. Some of you have great gifts that have been encouraged out of you. And others among you have things inside of you that are yet to come because you need that Barnabas person in your life to pull those great gifts out. Barnabas shows up again in Acts chapter 11 when this little community that we talked about in Acts 4 starts to grow and they realize it's not just about their Jewish community figuring it out, that the movement of Jesus is global and that it belongs in the hearts and the minds and the lives of the Gentiles, which were to simply say every day other non-Jewish people is all that word means. The non-believers, the people outside this community, and the word of God begins to move in their lives too. And it begins to take roots and it begins to grow. And we're told in Acts chapter 11 that news of this growth reached the church in Jerusalem. And the church then sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and he saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and he encouraged them. He encouraged them. He said, remain true to God with all your hearts. And then what do we read about Barnabas? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This is what Barnabas did in communities that he was part of in the early church. And this is, this is an example for us. You know, how then do we actually do this? How do we live this out? Because like we said, this isn't the natural response of our culture. The first thing is to practice patience. When we're encouraging people, what we are encouraging is what God is doing inside of them to come out, not our own agenda for them or not our timeline for them either. And it requires great patience to encourage people because sometimes the answers are so obvious to us right on the outside looking in. We're like, can't you just see what you're supposed to do with your life? But they have to get there on their own. Patience is hard. You know, I struggle with some of the simplest encouragements with my own children sometimes. I remember a day a couple years ago, we were on our way to school. My boys were already in the car. I had an early meeting. I needed, the, I needed everything to work on time so I could make my meeting. And my daughter decided that it was that day she was going to try to tie her shoes herself for the very first time. And I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. And she's, take the loop and put it around and put it. And I'm like, come on! You know, there are things to do. I do not have the patience to wait for you to tie your shoe. And what is our, what is our penchant? What is our, our gut says, I'm just going to do this for you. That is not encouragement. Encouragement is helping people find the ability to do it themselves, realizing they have the strength to do it themselves. Annie Lamott has a brilliant book that she's famous for called Bird by Bird. It's her thoughts on the art and the craft of writing. 
And she tells a story in it. It goes like this. She says, 30 years ago, my older brother, who was 10 years old at the time, was trying to get a report written on birds that he'd had three months to write, but it was, of course, now due the next day. We were at our family cabin, and he was at the kitchen table close to tears, surrounded by binder paper and pencils and unopened books about birds, immobilized by the hugeness of the task ahead. And then my father sat down beside him and put his arm around my brother's shoulder and said, bird by bird, buddy, just take it bird by bird, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what we do. This is what we do. And I wonder, I wish I could have been there at those early meetings of the early church. They had meetings. They had councils. They were deciding theology. They were deciding some of the things that we still pray and say today under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if Barnabas ever said, bird by bird, guys, <laughs> just calm yourself down. We're going to get there. They didn't call him the son of encouragement for nothing. Secondly, we got to be honest. Be honest. I'm thankful. Eric Camfield actually reminded me of this one time. He said, you can't just encourage people to do just anything. You're going to set people up for failure. Right? I am the least mathematic person on the planet. If I came home from work one day and told my husband I was going to think about a PhD in physics, and he said to me, that's a brilliant idea, that would not be encouragement, right? We have to be honest. Sometimes encouragement comes when someone says, you know, I hear that you want to do some further education. Can I encourage you to consider this instead, right? Again, it doesn't mean our agenda comes through, but it means that we encourage people by being honest with what their gifts and passions are. We can even get in arguments with people sometimes and still be encouragement. If you flip to the last chapter or one of the last chapters of Acts, Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas get in a fight. They argue, they disagree. They respect each other. They actually go their separate ways. Interestingly, God never says which one was right and which one was wrong. But they, they could encourage each other and still be about God's work and disagree on things. So please be honest in our encouragement. One of the greatest gifts we can give each other is to honestly call up our gifts and our passions. It's what makes for good parenting, good fathering, when you honestly help your children discover what they're the best at, not just haphazardly high-five them and send them off to do whatever they want. And lastly, we need to be comrades and not competitors. You know, to the earlier point, we live in this competitive culture. We're saturated in competition. We're taught to size up one another as competition. Wouldn't it be great if the community of God was the place we could come and not have to compete, not have to wonder, do I measure up to those other people? You know, I am fiercely competitive. I've been an athlete most of my life. There's a part of me that wants this to be the best sermon you've ever heard and better than Dan Meyer will ever preach, right? I'm that competitive. I don't really want that, but sometimes I kind of do, right? But, um, right? I mean, yeah, right? We don't, we don't need to be like that. You know, com competition is never hailed as a virtue in Scripture. When the disciples were with Jesus and they started competing with one another, they asked him questions that went like this. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? How can I get more of what you've got? Who do you like better, Jesus, me or him, right? Jesus was like, knock it off, you fools. That is not what this is about. In my kingdom, there are many rooms. 
There is space for everybody. You do not have to fight for your little slice of pie because I got a big enough pie for everybody. Right? I, I, I love the example of Barnabas in scripture because it was not about him. He was not the center stage figure. The place that God gave him in scripture was to be the supporting role in the background. And he lived into that and did it brilliantly. And he never tried to one up and take the stage and compete to take somebody else's spot in the kingdom because he knew he already had one. So how do we live as comrades alongside one another instead of competitors? You know, my uh, greatest joy when I was growing up was um, that my dad exhibited these things. My dad was the ultimate, still is the ultimate balcony guy. He was in the front row of everything I ever did. My dad uh, is not a, a man of deep faith. He, he doesn't always understand church. Uh, he was in the front row of my seminary graduation. And I remember when graduation was over, he hugged me and he said, congratulations, well done. He goes, now what is this you're going to do again? <laughs> I said, dad, I'm going to be a pastor. You know, he was here this morning at nine o'clock in the third row. You know, he doesn't even know, he doesn't even know. Jesus just yet. He has cheered me on to everything in my life. My sister too. And I like to think that some of the great things choked up. Sorry. And all right. Oh, dad. Right. Okay. Um, some of the great things that I've been able to do in my life is because I've had that encouragement. And one of the gifts that I think I can give to the kingdom is to try to cheer other people on because encouragement is contagious. It's why encouraging parents, moms, and dads matter in the lives of kids. It's why it's a spiritual gift. It's why. <laughs> Thank you. I swear I wasn't going to cry, but whatever. It's why this thing matters. Right? So don't do it because it's a nice little thing that we're supposed to do, or it sounds like a Hallmark card. Encourage people because God is your great encourager. If you've never had an encourager or you don't have a dad that has ever done that for you, your father in heaven is doing that for you right now. He is the ultimate guy in the balcony, right? So be that for each other because this is what God calls us to do and be in the community of faith. You know, Barnabas was, was always there encouraging and pulling Paul up. And Paul later says this in 1 Thessalonians, interestingly, encouragement for us. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. What an encouragement that is. So go be those balcony people this day. Love on the dads around you if you've got one. Encourage them today. But beyond today, do that as you go through this life. Because you will not get those favors from our culture and the way you will get them from God in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the fact that you are the ultimate balcony person for us, that you have blessed us, that you have cheered us on. Lord, sometimes we don't hear you, so help us hear you and trust that is true. 
And Lord, for those of us who have blessed, been blessed with encouraging people in our lives, thank you. We give you thanks for that. But Lord, more than anything right now, we pray for those among us who just have never really felt that presence and that encouragement. Lord, please be with them. Cheer them on. Be with the fatherless, the voiceless, and those who struggle to hear your voice, Lord, because you are there cheering as the number one fan in this life. We thank you for all of this, for the opportunity to sing and to pray and to, to study your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen.